Together, a podcast by Central Peninsula Church in the San Francisco Bay Area. So something interesting that you all should know about Rachel, <laughs> that she has a family nickname. We, we got to let her reveal it, though. I don't want you to reveal this nickname. Okay, I'm just going to pre-qualify it a little okay, bit. Okay. So Rachel maybe is the tiniest person on staff. Um, that that's part of it. So I want you to just to think as you're listening to this podcast, what do you think her nickname would be? Cause it's not what it's what, what it is. I can assure you there's no everyone way. out there listening. It's not going to guess. Yeah. This is the nickname. There's no way you're thinking this nickname. So Rachel, what, and, and who calls you, first of all, who calls you this? My family, my Immediate family and my extended family. Okay, and this just and like, is this like like do they call you Rachel at all or like how integrated is this nickname? They they call me Rachel, but I feel like on birthdays or when I okay. answer the phone, I'll usually hear <laughs> said nickname before I hear my name. <laughs> That's excellent. Just when things are just when they're feeling special, like when they want yeah. to make yeah. you feel big special. occasions. Yeah, big occasions. Big ones. So if you were like at a Costco, would they shout this across like Costco and be like, "Hey"? Um, da, da, da. 100%. Yes, they would. Yeah. And do you get embarrassed or you just own it at this point? I feel like at this point I own it. Nice. I do. It, it, I'll be honest. It, it's a name you have to own. Like you got to lean into it to like resist yeah. this nickname isn't doing anybody favors. Do you yeah. think at you some point, it. I, like the, I like the suspense that we're not unveiling what the, what the <laughs> this, name is. Do you think this it, in the business is what you call a tease. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you think at some point you could make this nickname a Halloween costume. <laughs> and have you ever considered that? I have not. But and it, it every time someone asks be. you about it, you just say, this is me. This, <laughs> this is, is me. me in my truest form. The problem with that, though, <laughs> is she would literally be dressing up as herself for Halloween. Oh. Yeah. Oh. But, <laughs> yeah. She, right? but, yeah. but be, her real costume is the everyday, like, is Rachel. You know, Am because the real, Ra- the real Rachel <laughs> is this is this nickname is the mystery. <laughs> I think what we should do is unveil it at the end of the podcast. <laughs> I think we should go through the whole. Let them wonder. Let them wonder. Wow. Submit their guesses, but they have to wait till the end. In vain of secrecy. That's like a. It's like a Marvel movie with like an after credit scene. And look how good those people are doing. They're making millions of dollars. Millions. That's what we need. That's- Here's to our millions. That's, isn't that why Here's we started this podcast? That is that 100%. That is why. That's why. Rachel, I have, actually have a question for you about Kevin. I have been picking oh. up on something, but I'm wondering if you have too. There's a real laugh that Kevin has, and then there's a fake laugh. <laughs> that is have a you, lie. Have you learned to distinguish between the two? Because I'll tell you, it's a little sneaky until you edit him in a podcast every single week and you can tell, oh, Kevin thinks that joke is funny or Kevin doesn't think Jack, that joke is funny. But have you noticed the difference? Hmm. I have noticed intonation in laughter, but I, I can't say I've paid attention to real versus fake laugh as yet. Here, here's the thing. You, you can tell, I, I, I will admit there are two laughs. <laughs> Which now everyone is going to be listening for them, <laughs> which makes me very self-conscious about the way I laugh. But you can also tell not just from editing, but if you are married to me, because Lindsay has often claimed a problem with these two laughs. Uh-oh. And I will argue that it is not that one is a courtesy laugh, which is what she calls it, but one is a laugh worthy 
of a wholehearted laugh. And the other one is not that it's me being courteous. It's just it, was a, it was, wasn't as funny and deserving as the full laugh. Mm. Both still authentic to the funniness of the situation. Mm. But one is just a little more... That's a good cover. That is. <laughs> a little more guttural of a laugh. A little more deep, you know? So here's what I have, here's what I have determined. Real laugh is very fast little pulses. It's a little so self-conscious of my laugh. It's a little less. It's a little less like. Uh, it's a little less intentional. It's like ah, you know, like not like that. I can't really. I, yeah, see, like that was that was real. I but, am never gonna laugh around you again. I'm just gonna swear off laughing in front of Brandon. But the the maybe I don't want to say fake after what you just said. But not only do, is it a slow laugh, it's kind of like Count Dracula. It's like ah ah ah. Oh. ah. Have you heard that? Does that ring a I bell? I have heard that I, laugh. <laughs> And then, and then what he'll do is he'll re he'll rearticulate, like say say like a sentence. I'm not gonna be able to talk at the end of this. Okay, that's the intro. sentence. So he'll be like, ah, ah, I'm not gonna be able to talk. And he'll like he'll re he'll reiterate uh. the funny phrase to make you feel funny. It's actually because I think you really want to help people and make them feel like they're funny. It's it's a pastoral act. Yeah, that's what it is. I love it. That's, I love both laughs. We're, we're, we'll, I'll write a book, The Pastoral Laugh. Oh, <laughs> we'll that'll sell. <laughs> no, but um, Kevin, you and I had a, a conversation a little while ago about solitude. And this is actually sort of a precursor to something that, that's going to be coming in the fall around where we're taking our church and practicing. How do we practice becoming like Jesus? Mm-hmm. And we were kind of joking around about this because... We're going to start with solitude, right? Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about like, okay, what mountain are we going to tackle? What what are we going to do? Let's rally the troops. All right. What are we going to do? Come on. Come on, team. And then like you open with solitude. It's like we're going to, you know, what we're people think of Not sol- do a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> Intentionally. It's sort of like, uh, anticl- you know, it could be anticlimactic a little yeah. bit like, yeah, really? Yeah. This is what we're going to focus on? But the deeper you go and the more you examine Jesus, and I think you did this yesterday, the more you examine him and why he does. I love that Calhoun quote that says it's the container of discipline. Is that what you said? The yeah, con- it's a container discipline. It's a container. For the other ones, yeah. So this is sort of, yeah, it's it's like, or, or as we've been talking about, the keystone yeah. habit yeah. that sort of affects every other single habit. Mm-hmm. So why would you say, like, Let's say I'm a skeptical person like, man, Kevin, why aren't we going and, and uh, I don't yeah. know, doing something better or cooler? What's up with <laughs> solitude? What, yeah. Sell me on a little. Yeah, what, what's, yeah, yeah. What's the, why was it so important? Yeah. yeah well, I think it starts with the basic assumption, and I've said this a few different times, that we, with me chief among them, um, are just too busy to follow Jesus. And so there's a sense where like solitude and silence... Um, which really fall under kind of a broader category of just like, how do we grow in attentiveness to God? And and it, it really just functions off that assumption that we're just too busy to follow Jesus, that we want to do so much of these Jesus-y things, um, but our calendars just don't have the margin for it. Our day-to-day yeah. living doesn't have the margin. And so solitude and silence, it forces us really to just slow down and and take, in some ways, just an assessment of kind of where we're at with um, with Jesus. And so that's where Calhoun, when, when she talks about it being that container discipline, she's essentially getting at that same idea that without some level where we disconnect from the busyness of the world, 
uh, we can't um, take on the very things, the practices that formed Jesus' life. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, I mean, again, I, the, the, I forget where I, I read this question, but it's always stuck with me. It's like, can you really ever imagine Jesus busy? Mm. You know what I mean? Like when you think about the life of Jesus, you just simply can't envision him rushing around. Mm. You know, which is, which is really interesting in our world that um, really what like kind of the late modern world is doing to us is it's accelerating everything, right? And we tend to think of that just in terms of like technological advance. And certainly that's a big piece of it, that technology is moving quicker and quicker and quicker. Um, but it's also moving quicker in our commitments and the belief that just more is always better. Um, I need more. I need my kids in more after school activities. I need my kids in, um, you know, accomplishing this SAT score, or this or that, or I need to climb the corporate ladder and this or that, you know, whatever it is. Um, the kind of the lie that our modern world continues to tell us is more is better. And I, I personally think some of, I'm drifting a little bit from your question, but I think some of the the issues we're facing nowadays as far as just like the tension and everything that's just, everything seems to be running red is because we're bumping up to the reality that as everything has been more is better, we live in a finite world. And so we can't just always mm. make more money. We can't always just go faster. We can't always take on more commitments because something like a resource like time is in fact limited by its nature. And so when we try to go quicker and quicker and quicker, we burn out you know, faster and faster. But the reality is we all, like, and this is the tension we live in, is we all want more because we, that, that validates us. And so we want more. And so the moment we, we kind of pull back, we actually are exposed and, and, and we kind of see how hollow that is. And so I think this is one of the reasons we resist to bring it back to science and solitude. We naturally resist, resist science and solitude because, I mean, to just put it crassly, it's not effective. Um, it's not efficient. And, and I think that's where this idea of solitude is to say we have to unplug from the kind of cultural expectations and demands around us that have ways of living embedded in them um, and worldviews embedded in those patterns of filling our calendars, um, always, you know, everything's always up and to the right, more, more, more. Like those sorts of habits and practices that we just absorb from the world around us train us into a, a way of thinking about the good life and solitude for Jesus seemed to be one of those ways in which he unplugged from the system around him and was able to then just kind of be in the presence of God as, as maybe inefficient or inefficient as we think it is. Um, and so solitude, I think, affords us that opportunity to say, we have to unplug, get away, to both assess our life as well as like become comfortable with inefficiency. Um, and that's, that's hard for us. I mean, that grinds away at us. Um, but I think it is, I think it is necessary. If I, I think about like this thing that I have been saying for years, um, you know, when I have time, I'm going to yeah. blank. <laughs> yeah. Like I think in some ways we, what, what actually triggered this in me is when you talked about even with finances, you know, like the idea that you can out earn what you spend if you're a bad spender yeah. <laughs> is, is such That's a really fallacy. Good. And the reality is like we keep ourselves at such a frantic pace. Like yeah. we don't slow down. I'm, I'm remembering junior high, my small group leader telling all these junior high kids who had nothing but free time. <laughs> uh, you guys are going to, you guys going to have a hard time with the rat race, you know? Yeah. And we're thinking what rat race? You know, we just ride our bikes all the time. And, <laughs> and now that I'm, 
you're on the rat race. Yeah. And, yeah. and as your kids get older, Kevin, you're feeling this, like yeah. as your kids get older, that gets there. Now you're, and you're in their rat race too. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Volleyball. And I think that I the demands of finite resources of time and money are actually learned habits. Those are imposed upon us as we get older. Kids don't have those inherently. There's they really inherent don't. Freedom. Like if you watch Charlie and my seven year old get out of the car, <laughs> like let's say we're all going to a restaurant yeah. we all get out of the car we're just standing there for so long because for some reason she takes her shoes off when she gets in the car oh. and now yeah. she's looking for her shoes yeah. she sometimes somehow lost them in the 10 minute car yeah. ride to sushi and she's just in the car we're just waiting there Charlie yeah. are you ever going to get out of the car and, and she life. doesn't care no it, it doesn't not, affect not her at all care. she's like that's fine you know it's totally fine but there's something beautiful in that kind of freedom like we learn and, and this I think was a little bit of my point with solitude is we are constantly learning these habits that we assume like we just assume it's the law of gravity that more is better, mm. that that doing more, earning more, whatever is always better. Mm. But it's just not. Like that's a learned habit from from a vision of the good life that the that the world around us, particularly the Bay Area, kind of imposes on us. And and solitude in some way I think affords us that chance to just kind of disconnect and and really it, it then becomes the space in which, oh now I can do those things that I commune more with God, you know, that those other disciplines that help me connect with God. But it has to start. Um, with unplugging and and just drawing our attentiveness to God. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think I was even listening this morning to the radio and they were talking about the difference between hurry and um, busyness and how those are also a little bit different where busyness is external and then hurry is like mm-hmm. more an internal state, um, which was interesting. And I was thinking more about it, but I also thought it was interesting that we have a lot of devices or kind of tools to help us do things faster, Hmm. Um, which you would think if we do things faster, then maybe we would have more space for the things we say, oh, I wish I had more time for this. That's why they sell, right? Yeah. I mean, they sell the things as more efficient, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then I find myself just trying to find more things to do (laughs) in some ways. (laughs) It's like, oh, I want to catch up on this. And a lot of times solitude isn't the first thing I think of um, because it does feel inefficient in some ways or at times like boring (laughs) but but I think it's good to to slow down because even if I'm not busy I often find I'm still hurried inside Mm -hmm. so it's interesting that even when I'm not busy and I don't have things to do it's still hard to to find time for solitude because I'm still internally still moving like a million miles a minute yeah it's like the lie is that efficiency thing right like as you were talking about that it's like that's that's the problem that life has to be efficient. Yeah. Um, like somewhere we picked that up. And it's not that like inefficiency is better per se, but it's mm-hmm. somewhere we are kind of enslaved to this idea of efficiency and that that somehow um, is going to bring, well, I think it it's probably what we're searching for transcendence, right? And I think that's where we think if I just achieve more or like I always joke too, like if I just had more hours in the day, um, then I'd be more rested. I'm like, no, I wouldn't. Like, <laughs> I'd, I'd fill it with more work. I'd yeah. fill it with more stuff and more things. Um, and so there's like, there's a grace of God in kind of that finite, um,ness. but I like that, that difference between mm. hurry and busy. Mm. Um, that's really good. There's something to that. But if efficiency is your main metric on everything, there are things that arguably the things we care most about 
are the most inefficient things. Yeah. Mm. There's nothing efficient about your marriage, you know, or your relationship with your kids or your parents or whatever, you know, it's the, we, um, we've commodified everything, right? Everything has a particular value or whatnot. And so if this is where like God being eternal messes with all of that, right? Is, is because that kind of a, a secular kind of worldview is built on the idea that we have, that the world is finite, right? Which at some level it is like the material world does have a finite nature to it. But yet the creation story we celebrate, the God we worship is one who, who instills in creation generativity, right? That, that the trees give life to more trees, that animals through their death give more life to others. Like there's a sense in which there, um, we don't have to live from that scarcity complex, um, but actually from an abundance. And if we can shift our worldview, like what kind of late modern capitalism wants us to believe is that it is purely a scarcity model. And so it's, we have to make the most amount of Big Macs as we can in the fastest amount of time to then sling those out to bring in enough money so we can make more Big Macs, right? Like there's a scarcity model and we got to get ours while we can. But the, the God being eternal and this sort of abundance perspective messes with all of that, then it's no longer like I have to fight to guard my own, but it's this more deep abiding trust in God is the giver of all good things mm-hmm. and he'll bring those. And it then like even even as I'm talking about it, like I can sense like an anxiety like, man, I wish I, I had that more at my core, this idea of abundance, because then I can rest in trusting I don't have to produce. I can sit in silence and solitude a little easier mm-hmm. because God's abundant and he's good and he'll take care of us. Um, and it doesn't mean life will be easy. It doesn't mean we'll get everything we want, right? That's still the scarcity model. But it's this sort of new creation dynamic to say, well, God is pretty stinking abundant. And this world is is filled with abundance. And it's a matter now of how do we steward that well, um, opposed to a scarcity model that says, I've got to get mine, which means I have to take from you, mm. um, which is totally different. You know, it's a, it's a totally different worldview. So you talked about solitude. Um and in that, this idea of the, is it a Greek word, eremos? Eremos, good work. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what is that? What is that? This is something that Jesus practiced. Yeah. Yeah. So this, you know, this, this idea of the eremos, we're going to see multiple times in Mark. We'll see it actually, I think in the next, uh, this coming um, Sunday as well. Uh, but it's, it's often translated something different. And so here you get solitary place. Um, at times, I think this week's text, I'd have to look at it again, is the lonely place. Um, other times it's wilderness even can be that they go out into the wilderness, but it's this idea that at least from what we can tell, like Jesus would regularly enter into the Aramos. Now, I don't know if it's the exact same place. I actually think it is a different place, but Mark uses the same word. Um, I think as a way, kind of a literary device of saying, here's Jesus retreating again. And he's helping us see this sort of rhythm to Jesus' life in his pursuit of, again, the Aramos. And so the Aramos becomes that space where Jesus disconnects, kind of enters into solitude. And, and so part of my, uh, where, I, where I opened um, on Sunday or yesterday, is this idea that, you know, if we want the life of Jesus, we have to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. Um, and that's a Dallas Willard quote, but he talks about, again, like, Somehow we divorce the logic of how we change in every other aspect of our life from what it means to follow Jesus. Mm. And, and so when we see something like this, where Jesus is constantly um, oscillating between work and rest, or work and the Aramos, 
um, that that's that's a that should be a signal for us of like we should probably pay attention um, to that rhythm. Um, and I think particularly going back to the Calhoun quote, Jesus does this because he recognizes that's the container in which he does other things to encounter God. Um, and so the Aramos is, you know, will look different for all of us here, right? Um, but it is, is, is a regular kind of rhythm in our life where we retreat away from the noise um, to get away with God um, intentionally and dist- you know, as distraction-free as we can be, um, which I think we can carve out some of that more, more frequently than we do. Um, but that, that's, the, that's the Aramos. I feel that as a, as a worship leader or even just as a pastor, like if I, like, like my connection with God it, it has become the well hmm. that I go to in order to, to minister. And if I miss, if I minister without visiting that well, I'm giving people more Brandon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to give them my stuff. I'm going to mm-hmm. give them what I think. I'm going to give them my opinions. Hmm. And the more I'm, I'm connecting and communing with God, the more I have his perspective and his priorities. So yeah, it makes sense that, that it would be a kind of a container yeah. discipline because from that flows everything yeah. else. Yeah. And everything you try to do, if you're not connected with, with God, you're, you're doing it in your own strength and your yeah. own power. It's good. Um, so then you talked about prayer. I feel like, man, there are, I feel like there are probably a thousand miss nomers about, <laughs> about what prayer is. Yeah. Um, and you kind of talked a little bit about some of them, you know, uh, some people it, it starts and stops at prayer before any food, you know, other people, it, it has to be, you know, written somewhere. Other people, um, I just remember reading this, this worship team I was on really early on and we would do, do you remember the unspoken did you ever do that? Unsp- the unspoken a, request. Like a, we'd go around in our in our worship team. Wait, Rachel, you've never heard of this? I've never heard oh, of this. Oh, man. Yeah. So Early 2000s, around. late 90s uh, youth group right here. Yeah, oh. I don't know where this came from, but um, someone wanted prayer, but they didn't want to say what it was, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But it became like a thing in the unspoken prayer the request. Unspoken prayer. I just remember I was sitting there with this this super weird drummer. And this lady clearly didn't want to share her unspoken. She said, I have an unspoken prayer request, um, but just please be praying for me and my family. You know, and we're like, yeah, sure. Of course. Like any normal person would respect that. And we just pray for her. But the drummer's like questioning her. Like, what, what is it? Who is it? Who is it? You know, is it your son? It's your son, isn't it? It's your son. And we're all like, blink twice if it's your son. Yeah. We're all like, dude, (laughs) shut up. This is so awkward. She clearly doesn't want it. And finally she's like, yeah, it is my son. And we're like, <laughs> we just feel so bad because the drummer just like oh, no. pressured into just sharing her unspoken. Did the drummer pray for her son? Probably not, yeah. man. He, oh. It was weird. It was really weird. But I think there's just, there's so, we've done so much with this, but I love yeah. your, your definition that prayer is really, um, where did I put that? The means by which we connect and commune with God. Like yeah. at the center of it, yeah. prayer is the means by which we connect and commune with God. Mm-hmm. I feel like out of all of the, everything that people may be thinking about, their misgivings about what prayer is or what it's not, I feel like we should all be able to agree on that definition. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a, I think a, um, there's, it, it's interesting, you know. As I shared too, I've, I've had a tenuous relationship with prayer at, at seasons where it's been really rich, 
Others where I've just not done it. <laughs> Others where it's been really dry. But but there's still a like, and, and, and part of it I think is we overcomplicate it. Like there is this simplicity to just connect and commune with God. Um, and that can look a, a thousand different ways, right? You can do that, you know, as you even alluded to, it's, it could be written prayers, pre-written prayers. Unspoken. Unsp- unspoken. <laughs> it could be, it could be like, I know, like I talked to a few people after church on Sunday that were just talking about like, they just connect with God on hikes and that's how they find a richness to, to connect and commune with God. I think that's beautiful. Um, and so there, there's like a, we overcomplicate it. Like no doubt I get way into my head on this and overcomplicate it. And so there's a simplicity to it. But then I think there's also like this sense that we'll never master prayer. And maybe that gets back to my ingrained efficiency thing or like needing to perform. Um, but, but there is a sense like we're all beginners at prayer. Like it's not something you ever really, I think, arrive at. Um, but we, we come kind of fresh to God wanting to connect and commune with God over and over again. And, and maybe, maybe it just ebbs and flows with seasons of life, but I'd be interested in just hearing, you know, kind of your guys' experiences with prayer as I've kind of talked about my tenuous relationship. I know others, others take to it much better than I, and I'm always inspired by them as well. So, yeah, I think I've also experienced those same ebbs and flows. And there was a time where I could only really pray if I journaled, because if I Mm. didn't, then I would get so distracted. Hmm. Um, but then it's funny, even as we kind of teach in middle school, if like keywords are like the acronyms for prayer and it's like, wow, prayer can be simple, mm. but I tend to complicate it as well. Wait, there's um, an acronym for prayer? Yeah. There's like acts and chat. Oh, and I thought, I thought prayer was an acronym. Oh. <laughs> Let's make one. Yeah. People. People remembering assistance. All. All. I like that. <laughs> People remembering all your extemporaneous requests. requests. <laughs> hey. Don't use that. That's not great. That's what it is. Sorry. So anyway, continue. But yeah, I think just remembering that it is that time of connection with God. And what I loved, what you said about prayer was allowing God to fill our imagination. Hmm. And even just realizing that, yeah, prayer is it a two-way conversation. Mm. Yeah. And in some ways that alleviates the pressure of needing to have the right thing to say. Yeah. Um, and kind of frees me to be more comfortable with silence. So I feel like that's kind of where I'm at now with prayer. Like I don't need to journal at all. Mm. There's some days where that is the reality, but I think sometimes just learning to, to listen more and feel that, that freedom from that pressure, um, that has been good and growing. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm convinced, Kevin. You can, you can thwart this if if you think it's inaccurate or wrong. But I'm prepped I'm, and ready to thwart. <laughs> I'm convinced that um, for many of us, like I think sometimes, uh, like solitude and prayer comes easy for people. Um, but I'm convinced that there is an element um, in some of us that we sort of need to teach our brains mm. how to do this. Um, in the same way, like when you sit down at a drum set, um, your hands and your feet, what's crazy about a drum set is all four of your appendages are trying to do something. (laughs) And theoretically, the better drummer you are, the more each of those can do their own thing. (laughs) But there are very few people that can just sit down the first time at a drum set and be able to just play drums because you have to do so many little things. 
And so when I first started playing drums, I just remember thinking like, my brain will never do this. Or when I started leading worship and trying to talk while I was playing an instrument, <laughs> yeah, I used to have to be like, dee, 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 you know, and I'd stop playing. It's kind of like, and I'd be like, dee, 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 dee. I'm kind of thinking about like, I could not do the same. <laughs> if you watch me now, I just talk and play yeah, yeah. and there's like something happened and actually like it, you have to split your brain and there's something that you, you teach your brain something that it never could do before. Yeah. And I remember going to this prayer house, um, which is just a place there, there was this movement that was trying to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they would actually have missionaries that were called like intercessory prayer missionaries and they would get support and they would basically stay at this house. That was their 40 hour a week job. And they would pray all day and they would have like different schedules of what they would pray for. And they would do different types of prayer or they would do like live worship or whatever. And, and they needed, I don't even remember how I got hooked up with these people, but they needed someone to just be in the room. They didn't know I was a worship leader. And so I would, I volunteered for, I said, yeah, give me a two, two hour slot. I may have shared this story with you, Kevin, but yeah, I've heard it's a good one. Um, they gave me the 2 AM slot two eight, 2 AM to 4 AM. And I'm like, okay. prime prayer time. <laughs> that is, they're like, really? We just want to make sure no one comes in on the street and like destroys things and steal things. But we, <laughs> we encourage you to connect with God. And I was like, all right, sure. You know, and, and now keep in mind, I'm a worship leader. I work at a church. I pray when I'm at family events, like they all look at me cause I'm a pastor. Like I should know how to pray. <clears throat> so I'm like, this is not going to be a big deal. And 15 minutes go by and it was seriously the longest. <laughs> it was worse than driving through Kansas. <laughs> if you've ever driven through Kansas, you're just like, what's happening? There's nothing going on. The Kansas of prayer. <laughs> My mind is just like I prayed everything. I, I prayed all the things. <laughs> that, everything, everything you got is yeah. done. Yeah. And now what do I do? And I remember just kind of going out to the drinking fountain and like being like, what do I do? And the the leader of the prayer house kind of came and he's like, how you doing in there? Is your first time here? And I was like, yeah, I think he could You're see like the first and last. Yeah. <laughs> I think he could see this like forlorn look in my eye. And he's like, hey, I know sometimes it's hard to focus. And I was like, yes, it is. He goes, what would you say like your attention span is and I was like mm. well I lasted about 15 minutes <laughs> which is pretty good that is good and I Compared remember most better than a goldfish span. <laughs> yeah well this is pre you know like iPhones I think my attention span is probably less now. now but I just remember him saying like just so you know like you being here it means a lot to God mm. like you you saying I'm setting aside I'm setting aside time for God mm. means a lot mm. he goes so it all counts <laughs> like, and if you want to try to keep your mind engaged, like, like you were talking about Rachel journaling, like, why don't you try journaling for as long as your attention will hold you and then maybe check in with the live worship. Oh yeah, that's right. I did tell you about the live worship with a yeah. saxophone. Yeah. And then, um, well then you can't just gloss over for the listener that the live worship was a saxophone. Didn't we talk about that in the podcast? I don't think we did. Oh yeah. But. One night, one night it was, there was a, a saxophone worship leader and that's all. It was just plain just, saxophone. <laughs> Wow! Shout out to the Lord. Um, on saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> and then for the next fifteen minutes, I would walk, you know, just walk around the room and try to pray just while I'm moving. And um, as I was there, I just started thinking, like, how often do I give God time? How often do I just mm. say, "This is yours, my valuable, valuable time that I want, always want more of, that I don't yeah. think there's enough of." 
but this is yours for two hours, even if it is 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. <laughs> and I'll tell you, man, that, that experience changed me. Yeah. It changed my brain. It changed how I view that time with God. But it would not have happened if I didn't force it. And I'm not saying yeah. everyone should go to a prayer house, but I had to force myself to learn how to quiet my mind and quiet my soul and connect with God and just give him time. And then God shows up. And when yeah. once God shows up, you then you have a taste for it. And mm-hmm. I think it I think that starts to change. Yeah. It starts well, to change. I think change that's everything. what Paul I mean, when Paul says pray without ceasing, I mean certainly he doesn't think you're constantly on your knees with your hands folded and your eyes closed. Right? Like to, to pray without ceasing must mean that there is exactly what you kind of got to, this this way in which we can operate in the world aware of God's presence. Mm. Um, it's it's the thing, you know, Brother Lawrence would would say, you know, practicing the presence of God. Uh, a lot of spiritual formation kind of literature would talk about practicing the presence of God, which is this idea of becoming aware of God's presence kind of in every moment. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean just consciously God, 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 God. Like it doesn't necessarily mean it in that vein, but rather it's this, there has to be a way in which we operate in the world kind of in, in constant communion with God. Um, I think that's, Brian, I love that, the freedom that that guy met you at the, the water fountain with of like, Hey, you just being here aware of God is in some respects, a win. like that's a win. You know, that's the God is, God is excited for that. And, and what can we do that? What can we give God? Mm. Yeah. I mean, really yeah. outside of this. Yeah. Like he wants us, like he doesn't want anything. He doesn't want the money we're going to make yeah. or the yeah. successful business that we're going to run or whatever. Like he wants, like the fact that if we could just hone in on that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's really what we have to offer. Yeah. Here I am. Yeah. And you know, the other part of this that, that you kind of even got to is in, in that kind of, a, you know, you can, you can sense it even in our conversation to give yourself, just yourself over to God and to be able to still all the other noise, like that act itself is transformative. Mm. And so there's a sense that prayer is for our spiritual formation. Like not be not necessarily because like partly because we connect with the Holy Spirit, we invite the Holy Spirit in, we confess and repent and all that kind of stuff, of course, and we intercede on, on behalf of others and our needs. All those things should be happening, um, but there's a level then where the very act of praying forms us because it it like you can't necessarily pray without solitude at some level. Um, and now solitude's kind of expanding to what I think, Rachel, you were even getting at with the difference between hurry and busy, is you yeah. can have a sort of um, internal solitude, right, where, you're, where your spirit is settled. I think often we need to physically be in solitude because our minds are trained to race and run from one thing to the next. But there's a sense in which you can experience. Like I remember, I remember um, a few years ago when I was commuting out to Berkeley twice a week. Um, and I was taking BART the whole way, which is a long, a long BART ride. Mm-hmm. Um, there's it's a lot of BART. Uh, but I remember like, <laughs> being able, at least in the mornings at times, like there was a sort of solitude with jamming into a BART train. Even though I'm surrounded <laughs> by people, there's, st- there's almost a sense of like the more people that were there, the more invisible you became, um, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily bad. Like there's a form of solitude there where I was able then to, you know, at times I wouldn't like often, I don't want to make it sound more holy than I, than I was, but there were times where I could engage in prayer with mm. God, even in the midst of a, of a, a bark commute to Berkeley, mm. um, because there is a sense of that sort of solitude. I think that's what, when Paul says again, pray without ceasing, he's getting at this sort of mode of living in which we're always in the communion, you know, always in communion with God. 
in all of our tasks, working, email, dishes, whatever it is, uh, where we're practicing the presence of God. I don't want to miss out on the last one, which is secrecy. And I think this is so fascinating. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit about how, like being a pastor, how this is arguably harder for you yeah. than for other people because this is our profession mm-hmm. and you know, being visible as someone who is spiritually visible, you have to kind of fight against yeah. some of that where you want to create a persona. And I remember yeah. early on in ministry, I had a really hard time because people ascribe to you what they think your spirituality is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I remember, I remember moms, <laughs> it was never girls, but moms, <laughs> the, the moms of girls would come up to me and say, I want you to marry my daughter. When I was like early on in, in ministry, they had no idea <laughs> like who I was. Like not perform the wedding? No, no. They want, they, they they want like, you to be the spouse. They, yeah. want you. <laughs> they would show me pictures of their daughter and say, hey, you need to meet my daughter. I'm like, does your daughter know that you're doing this, first of all? <laughs> and second of all, you that don't smolder, know that smolder, Brandon. Me. That smolder you have on stage. Is just... It's really not. I think they thought I was this like super yeah. amazing, holy worship leader, yeah, you know, and yeah. you guys both know after working with me that I'm definitely not that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you start, you know, like if you're not careful, like you can go down that trail and create, you can just walk into that persona yeah. that people create for you yeah, mm-hmm. and, and do the right things and look the right part. And, mm-hmm. um, I thought that was really, uh, that was really a good way to put it. I thought when you said that, I was thinking about when I'm at the car wash, um, I always give the people that wash the car, like my tip mm-hmm. and I go to Ducky's now in San Carlos and they, uh, that sponsor the podcast, <laughs> Shout go out to for- Duckies for all your girl washing needs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they, somewhere along the line, they switched from the, me giving them the tip to the big bucket, the big like plexiglass, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. um, thing. Where Communal you put, ducky bucket. I can't do it. <laughs> I so can't, now you don't tip? I can't. No, <laughs> I give it. I get, no, it's because I want them to see me giving them the tip. Uh. It doesn't count if yeah. I just put it in the thing. <laughs> you don't get credit for it. No, yeah. I need them. I need them to. Yeah. I need them to see me and be like, "Oh, that man yeah. is the kind of man that gives tips." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that the same thing you were talking about? Well, it is. It, it's that like <laughs> maybe not duckies, but uh, but it's that. Um, I mean, yeah, it's that performative righteousness, right? That I think gets particularly like you were saying, or and I was saying on Sunday of like for those in ministry, the temptation is so vast to to really just charade your way through this thing um, because you can, you know, what I mean, like it's just so easy to absorb the projection of what people assume uh, that we have things put together, that we are in fact perfect or whatnot. Um, and then kind of just act that out. And so this, this practice of secrecy that we see so much in Jesus life, I just find like incredibly important for people in ministry, um, because it, it forces us to ensure at least for that one moment that we're not doing it to be seen, that Mm -hmm. we're not doing it to, you know, be the kind of person who tips instead of just being, you know, or or being seen as that way and not just being the kind of person who does tip or whatnot. Um, And so this, this practice of secrecy, again, like it's, I think it's one of the few ways where we can expose the ego like pretty easily. Um, and, and to do it kind of 
only for the for the the pure sake of of us needing to assess ourselves, mm. um, which makes it really hard to talk about this practice, right? Like, because yeah. uh, I can't just spout off like, here's what I'm doing to practice secrecy, right? Like, but there has to be a, a kind of a check and a balance to say, here's here's how we engage in our relationship with Jesus without the trappings of public awareness or accolades. Um, And I mean, let's be honest, like social media is set up for that. And so like, that's just one aspect of the, like the, again, when we think of the patterns of this world that are just constantly shaping us is we live in a world that's saturated with performative righteousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, We may not call it that, um, but certainly that's, that's what can, can happen um, on things like social media, even, even unconsciously. Right, like filtering a photo is a way in which we're performing a better version of ourselves than we are, and it's not that that's inherently wrong, right? Like I'll still post pictures of my family and do that sort of thing, Um, but it's building in us the image that we have to filter our life, right, in the way that we would filter a post or a picture. I was thinking about you know that text um, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, where Jesus says, "Give in such a way that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing." And the only way you can do that is if it becomes the natural, like literally like in your muscle memory. Mm. You know, I think of like driving again is the kind of classic example. We all drove here to the office, um, to CPC together headquarters <laughs> and, uh, and we drove here and we didn't think about it. Right. More or less. We just got here cause it's in our muscle memory. Yeah. And so there's a level at which how do we get following Jesus into our muscle memory? Mm. And I think the way we do that is, is, is having to expose Right, those motivations. And so I think yeah. there is a sense where when you tip, but you're doing it performatively, there's, I think, the need to still tip, but the conscious awareness to say, my motives are still muddied. And usually the way that that then is exposed, which is this deeper kind of level of um, sin or whatnot, I think is in community, mm. which is weird when we start thinking about secrecy, but like we all need, I think, someone that can help us navigate this. Like I, I think in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, my therapist can be that space where I can wrestle through like, am I doing this? Am I practicing secrecy because I actually want to or am I doing this wrongly? And if I don't have that sort of intimate community where I can then in fact say like, yeah, here's what I'm doing and I want you to know that I'm doing this. But also I need that, like my therapist is is utterly uninvolved like his success does not rise or fall with me at all he's he's in in many ways uninvested in me in the sense of whether my life succeeds fails whether i train wreck or not like he's just there and his um his connection to me isn't based on my performance he's just there like that's safe community and so in that because he does not rise and fall uh with me like he's not vested in me in that sense he has the freedom and I have the freedom to go to him and say anything and everything. And he can just hear that and receive that. Like that's intimate community that we need that isn't based on performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's like the space where we can kind of figure out and expose those motives. So I think there's a sense that maybe I didn't bring this out as well on Sunday as I'd like. But secrecy doesn't necessarily mean telling absolutely no one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think often it does. And we still need to do that work. But kind of to get at what you're talking about we need at least at least one trusted individual who's in your life for the pure sake of them being in your life for no other reason um, that they aren't attached to you because you can perform um, they're not attached to you because you give them something or they give you something but someone who's uninvested in that sense but deeply caring for you 
um, they can be the ones who can speak that truth into you and can speak that as you kind of go about kind of navigating this um, and can then kind of reveal, I think, some of that. And so we need we need some some level of that in our lives. And so maybe secrecy isn't purely not telling anyone, but it's not, again, there's a difference between you know telling someone and, and not telling it publicly, mm. if that makes sense. Okay, so Kevin, um, to wrap here, like give us, give us some handles. Like how do we start tackling some of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It can seem daunting, right. To kind of all this stuff we're talking about, all these different practices and and loading these and this and that. Um, but it is, I think it is pretty simple, right? Like we see Jesus, um, really do like two, really three things that I think are easy steps for us. Um, and it's, it's, we see first of all, his consistency, like he continually goes out to the Aramos. He goes out and retreats away. Um, so I think there's a sense where we gotta get we gotta get towards that goal of consistency. I think that's part of how we get it into our muscle memory is repetition. And then the, the things that we do consistently, I think, really just revolve like we need a time to do this and we need a place to do this. Um, and so I think like literally tomorrow, like the easy next step is how do you schedule in this like this time of solitude? Where, where do you schedule in your Ramos? And then what's that? What is your Ramos? Where is that place? You know, I mentioned on Sunday that I've got a particular chair in our home office, kind of in our home library where I just, that's my, that's my sacred space. And I go there and I know like in the mornings when it's still dark and I get there, like that's like, it shifts in me. Like here's my time and here's my place early in the morning in this particular chair. Um, and then it's just showing up, right. And just being there consistently. And so I think there's a sense where this doesn't have to, it is an ask and it is like, we have to make changes as we talked about, like, you know, creating margin in our calendar and our and our our life to do this, um, but it is simpler than we want it than we tend to think of it. I mean, just start with with ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Um, allow that to grow. For others, it's like no, you've got this consistency, and you need to grow maybe to like thirty minutes, um, where you create that space or an hour of prayer and scripture, um, where you get away. But I think whatever it is, it's just what's that next step that that Jesus is inviting you into. Um, and I think those three things are where, where you know, you can kind of distill all of this down. Like, how do we do these kingdom practices, these three things we see in Jesus' life? I think fundamentally it's find a time, find a place, and then just be consistent. Um, and in those three things, I think we can see these integrate more into our life. And I think as we close, you can now unveil <laughs> what is your nickname? This is a hard shift. This is a hard shift from Ooh, a yeah. really good <laughs> quote there. It is chili beef. <laughs> Chili beef, in case any of you didn't hear that. Chili beef. Chili beef Chili dropping beef. truth bombs on us. <laughs> well, thanks, CB. Uh, we really appreciate CB. it. <laughs> Got to add Chili that to beef. my Instagram bio. Yeah, so if you see Rachel around campus on Sunday, go ahead and give a little shout out to Chili beef. Chili beef. She's going to never come on this I may or may not again. acknowledge you. <laughs> Is it because you like chili and beef or you like beef chili? It's because I enjoy beef, but also, <laughs> but also because in in Hindi, um, mirchi I think is a word for chili, and my parents acknowledge that I have a spicy side, like a streak, that oh. I'm pretty shy, but at home or like in certain situations, they'll just see this little chili beef comes so out. So they call me call me chili beef. Dang. Chili beef. Yeah. Love it. That's what it is. That is fantastic. And you're going to forever regret sharing that with Brandon Probably. And I, like, no doubt. <laughs> this is my letter of resignation. <laughs> <This is> <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Until next time. Talk to you later.